Well, it happened again. I missed a week. I wasn't here last Sunday, and it feels like I've been away for a month. Now, if I was to tell you, about a week or so ago, I slept in until 10 o'clock one morning. That's better than the reaction I got. So sleeping in until 10 o'clock, there's, we go to the, I go to the Y regularly, and there's a, we, a bunch of retired guys, we go out for coffee. So I missed the Y that day, obviously. So I get to the Y the next day, and we go for coffee. And I, somebody said, where were you yesterday? I said, oh, I slept in until 10. And one of the guys, retired farmer mechanic, so he's used to early mornings. I could never sleep in that late. Wow, I'll, I'll settle for a wow anytime, as opposed to that kind of response. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that be nice if people who attend Estevan Alliance Church, I mean, you miss a week and it feels like you missed a month, wouldn't that be good to have that kind of feeling? Um, now, I, I feel that way because I get to do what I love to do. I get to preach, and that's, that's part of it. But the other part of it is you. The other part of it is you. We just sang about God leading us to love, to lead us to those, to love those around us. So maybe that's a good thing to keep in mind from Sunday to Sunday, that, uh, you know, to create that kind of atmosphere where it's, boy, if I miss a week, it feels like a month. Sad news for me, good news for you, is I'm, I'm missing next week, but Todd Moraz is going to be uh, speaking next week, and uh, I know uh, Todd is familiar to many of you, and so Todd will be here. Um, also to let you know, the board is uh, continuing the pastoral search process and um, fine-tuning things. The board is in the process of determining which of two candidates will be uh, the pastoral candidate that, uh, that will be presented. So pray for your board. Um, pray for them, that for insight, for wisdom, for discernment, and for these two individuals, too, as they interact and, and respond with one another. And while you're praying for the board and the search process, pray for the nominating committee. We're in the process of uh, uh, discerning who would be elders at Estevan Alliance Church next year. The AGM is going to be the end of February. So as you're praying for the board and the search process and the next pastor, uh, please pray uh, for your nominating committee as well as we are uh, moving forward on, on things for the for the AGM in February. Now in your bulletin, there are some inserts related to the, the topic this morning, uh, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I sort of came across this um, special day in the church calendar, oh, back in my days in Nippon when I was teaching at Nippon Bible College. We used it as sometimes for the day of prayer focus in the fall, sometimes it was just for a, for a chapel service, but it's, it's kind of stuck with me, and every year I try to um, make sure we remember the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. As Kevin uh, prayed before the service, we were going over the service this morning in the, in the staff room, and, you know, we sometimes can live in a bubble. And one of the things I hope that today does for you is, is a bit of awareness uh, regarding uh, our brothers and sisters around the world and uh, kind of put things in perspective for us a little bit. Uh, there is some kids' material that will be available on the way out. There's a, a map of the World Watch List and some, some uh, pages there, there for the kids to take home and you guys to work on over lunch. So there at the back, the ushers will have them. Uh, feel free to take them as well as uh, the insert that you already have in the bulletin.
But first off, a short two-minute video just to give you a context and a perspective uh, regarding the persecuted church around the world. Some key findings from the World Watch List of 2019. In the north and the middle belt of Nigeria, at least 3,700 Christians were killed for their faith, almost the nu double the number of a year ago, with villages completely abandoned by Christians forced to flee as their armed attackers then move in to settle with impunity. Nationalistic governments such as India and Myanmar continue to deny freedom of religion for their sizable Christian minorities, sending the very clear message that to be Indian, one must be Hindu, or to be Burmese, one must embrace Buddhism. This impacts Christians most significantly in the rural areas. Extreme persecution also comes at the hands of radical Islamic militias, such as in Egypt, where the Islamic State in Sinai vowed in 2017 to wipe out the Coptic Church, as well as in Libya and many other sub-Saharan countries Southeast Asia has seen suicide bombers in Indonesia attack three churches in one day. In Mexico and Colombia, persecution mainly comes when church leaders challenge corruption and the cartels. Globally, it comes from family, friends, fellow villagers, colleagues, community councils, local government officials, police, and legal systems. Christian women and girls face more persecution pressure in the family and social spheres, while men and boys are more likely to experience the brunt of pressure from the authorities or the militias. 
with India at the extreme range of the world watch list and China at the very high range of the world watch list, which is on the map that you can get on your way out of the service this morning. Two of the world's most numerous Christian populations, one in a secular democracy, which is India, and the other in a communist state, face unprecedented persecution, albeit expressed through very different ways. Freedom in China, as many of you know, our connection with Sheila, freedom in China is changing. The Communist Party is becoming more controlling and the government has increased citizen surveillance. In an increasing number of cases, Bibles have been confiscated, churches raided, and pastors fined and arrested. Some missionaries have even been kicked out of the country. Churches are perceived as a threat if they become too large, too political, and invite foreign guests. The video you're about to see is the video of a church in China being demolished while the service is taking place. Being a follower of Jesus is tough in the 21st century. It was tough in the first century. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to jump around to a couple places in the New Testament just to remind us of the, the regularity of persecution for followers of Jesus in the first century. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, if you're working out of the, the Bibles in the pew, the blue Bibles, page 1114, page 1114. <clears throat> we landed here as we were working through our study in the letter to the Hebrews, but just a, a good reminder. Hebrews chapter 10, these followers of Jesus, when they first became Christians, this is how they handled things. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, other times you stood side by side those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now as we said, as we looked at this a while back, this, this was how they handled things at the beginning of their following of Jesus. They handled it very well. The reason, one of the reasons the apostles writing this letter is because they had gotten slack, they had gotten lazy, they had gotten lethargic, they had kind of lost, to use another phrase, lost their first love for Jesus and allowed these pressures and the, the hardships and the difficulties and the opposition to kind of push them back into old ways of living and going back to their old Jewish ways of worshiping the God of the Old Testament. So in chapter 12, just turn over a couple of pages to chapter 12, then the reminder and the exhortation 
to these believers who had started out so well as they faced the hardship and the opposition and the challenge of being a Christian in the first century, here's the exhortation. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, endured the opposition, endured the shame, endured the uh, abuse he received, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the references there, this idea of, of Jesus being at the, at the right hand of the throne of God, uh, that comes from Psalm 110. Just kind of keep that in mind. Another reference, back to Acts chapter 7. This is the early, early church. Uh, not too long after Jesus had been crucified, Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is preaching his sermon. And I think some of you know how Stephen's sermon ends. In verse 52, Stephen reminds his hearers, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders, that the prophets were endlessly persecuted for their faith. And then he picks it up in verse 54. When they heard Stephen talk this way about the prophets and about the temple, they were furious, the, the Jewish leaders, and they ground their teeth at him. Now, one of the things to notice here, if this sounds vaguely familiar, like what happened to Jesus, there's a, there's a reason for Luke doing that as he writes this account. There, there's an echo of what happened to Jesus. Verse 55, But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's that Psalm 110 reference again. Verse 56, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Psalm 110. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sound familiar? Then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this against them. Sound familiar? When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, given approval to Stephen's death. Life for Christians in the first century was not easy. Obviously, Jesus told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But what did that look like? What did that feel like? You know, we live in a world, sacred and secular is, is separated. Sacred and sec secular is sort of isolated. Yes, there is persecution, and we'll hear a little bit more about that in a moment. But in the first century, sacred and secular were all one. Everything, everything was sacred. Everything was religious. From the emperor on down, everything had a religious connotation to it. In fact, at almost every social level for the early Christians, to become a Christian was to expect that largely a negative response from the people around you. Why? Because everything was related to the worship of, of various gods and various spirits. Um, Professor Larry Hurtado talks about the ubiquitous place of pagan gods in the social life of the time and the Christian requirement to abstain from joining in the reverencing of traditional gods. And these two things clash everywhere, at every level. For example, he says, common expectations that people should join in honoring the gods in practically every social venue. 
contrasting with the behavioral demands of the Christian faith. In practically every social setting, there were several kinds of deities that were acknowledged. In the Roman homes, in civic and public offices, the Roman imperial order, obviously, the emperor was a god. There were the associations of tradespeople, where every trade and every guild had their own god. And at the beginning of every day, before the, the tents opened or before the windows opened to open up shop, there was some kind of worship, some kind of incense, some kind of honoring the god of that guild or that trade. Military units had their patron divinities. Any formal dinner included ritual acknowledgement of the deities, whether it was birth, death, marriage, the domestic space, the civil space, the wider political life, trades and work, the military or socializing, entertainment, the arts or music. Everything was connected to some religious significance in association with very kinds of divine beings. Public ceremonies, daily ceremonies, small informal occasions, meals, voluntary associations, and even families. Professor Hurtado concludes by saying, it would have been very difficult for Christians to have participated in any kind of variety of social occasions without having to consider whether they could do so in good conscience. And when things went bad, if the economy went bad or you weren't selling your, um, your nails that you had been working in your blacksmith shop or whatever and they weren't selling for some reason, who's going to get blamed? It's going to be the Christian closest to them because they weren't acknowledging the deity. If there's a drought, if there's a famine, who's going to get blamed? <laughs> who's the closest Christian you know? It's their fault because they're not worshipping the gods that we bow down to that are in charge of all this. So I say all that so we get an understanding of, of the implications of being a follower of Jesus and the challenges. What do you and I do when life gets tough? What do you and I do when we're kind of walking? When I left Regina this morning, it was pretty foggy, when life kind of feels like a bit of a fog. We know, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but what do we do when those times come when it feels like I'm not so sure he didn't leave me. I'm not so sure he's really hearing my prayer. I'm not so sure he's really doing what he's promised to do. What do you and I do when life gets tough? What do we do when what we're supposed to do doesn't seem to work? The prayers, the promises, the support from others, they're all great <laughs> until they aren't. So that's, that's the setting, right? That's the that's the reality for, for the followers of Jesus in the first century. That's the reality for the followers of Jesus around the world. And this, this whole idea of, um, I mean, this time last year, what were we worrying about? Do you remember? This time last year, we were worrying about the sewers backing up. Now, that's a far different cry from hearing some excavator coming outside our building and starting to crash in the ceiling. Yeah, I know there's a football game this afternoon. And I know there hasn't been a West Final in Regina. What, there's been only three West Finals in Regina in all the years of the Riders, and it's a big game. I get it. But does this kind of put things in perspective a little bit? Lorna Duick, 
uh, has a, I believe she's on the Vision Channel, uh, has a show called Context. And in one of her shows, she w interviewed the leader of Open Doors. Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, are two of the uh, agencies, two of the missions that are connected to uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. They're also, Open Doors is the one that does the World Watch, uh, the World Watch list. And uh, this little five-minute clip is an interview of uh, Lorna has with the leader of Open Doors Society Canada. So if we can run that clip now, Chris.
fact that we kind of do it for one service in a year doesn't really do justice to the implications. One more passage. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I think again a familiar passage. We, as we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, we pray that they would have confidence, that they would have conviction that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. And brings us to Romans chapter 8, familiar passage. Verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Then down to verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with Jesus graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. There's that Psalm 110. And is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Or as they said in the video, smash or squeeze. What kind of opposition? What kind of persecution? What kind of harassment? Take a minute and think about this Psalm 110. It's come up a couple times. It's come up a couple times intentionally on my part in, in sort of putting these verses together, but for a very good reason. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's, it's more than any other passage, more than any other place in the Old Testament. It's the passage that is sort of the go-to. Matthew, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in Acts, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians 15, a uh, number of the epistles in Hebrews and 1 Peter, Psalm 110 is sort of the go-to. It's kind of like, what's the go-to psalm for Christians in the 20th and 21st century? You saw it in the video. What's the go-to psalm for Christians in the 20th and 21st century? Psalm 23, right? If there's a Christian funeral, even if they're somewhat separated or have left the church, Psalm 23 is the go-to psalm. In the first century, it's Psalm 110. This was the go-to psalm. Psalm 110, if you're there, page 563 in the, in the Pew Bibles, page 563, begins with these words. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's the right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your... That's a promise of Jesus, the Messiah, and his, his conquering power, his worth, his might, his strength. Sit at my right hand. The right hand is, is the place of power and authority. And verse 4, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So these two verses are scattered as much as Psalm 23 is scattered throughout our, our Christian talk. If you put Psalm 23 and John 3.16 together in our, our, our God talk, if you will, respectfully, as, as sort of the go-to psalm and the go-to verse, in the first century, the go-to psalm was Psalm 110, and the go-to verse was Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Why? Well, if you understand the, the, the challenge and the opposition and, and the squeeze in every aspect of life that the early believers were under as they claimed Jesus as their Savior, 
No wonder they went to Psalm 110, verse 1. It's the reminder of the authority and the power and, and the, the role that God has given Jesus. So I let my mind wander a little bit this week. Think about, so the early church kind of landed on Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, place of power, place of authority, the best place to be, place of intimate communion with God until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me know. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, though I walk through the valley of shadow, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Two very different psalms. They both are about who God is, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord said to my Lord. But they're very different. Psalm 23 is about what I get from God. Psalm 23 is about what God is going to give me, what God is going to do for me. Psalm 110 is about who God is. It's about what God has established, what God's purposes are, what God's will is. In fact, we sang it this morning. If we could see your worth, your might, your endless love. Psalm 23 is kind of, we latch onto that, that's, that's how God loves us. But he, that, that song really, this is about God's worth. This is about his might and his power. And it, it can stop right there. Nothing else needs to happen because nothing else is going to change that. Jesus' exaltation, Jesus' glorification, their confidence in that the fact that Jesus was in control, that Jesus was reigning and ruling, even though it wasn't obvious. They couldn't afford to be soft. They couldn't afford to, to focus on, they had to focus on Jesus as the reign and ruling king who is given power by God now and will ultimately be king of kings and lord of lords for all the world to see. That's what they had to depend on. That's what they had to rely on. And so this emphasis on Psalm 110 is, is kind of interesting to me. And I think it goes back to that kind of bubble thing Kevin mentioned in the prayer before we came into the service this morning. It really begins with who Jesus is and who God is. His endless worth, his might, his power. This is what he has established. This is how he works. And so Psalm 110 is a psalm about confidence and assurance and conviction and faith and hope. And this priestly thing in verse 4 is about Jesus as our intercessor. Jesus is the one who is our advocate before God, is the one who made the sacrifice for our sins. Psalm 110 was absolutely crucial to the early church, and hopefully we have a bit of an understanding why. So for us today, I hope our, our time focusing on the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church, church would help us with our awareness a little bit. The reality of persecution then and now and the various ways and shapes and forms that it, it might take. The other thing I think we need to be aware of and that we haven't really talked about is that persecution in the, in the New Testament always led to growth. If you start with Stephen and his being stoned outside Jerusalem, 
The idea is the church then was scattered. The Christians scattered from Jerusalem and they went to Antioch. And Antioch became the new center of, of the message of the good news of Jesus. Why? Because they strategically planned it? No, because they were forced to run somewhere. Where there's persecution, there's growth. And the gospel spread in the New Testament time because of persecution. As, as Paul is persecuted from one town to the next town, he goes to the next town and shares the message of the good news of Jesus. Persecution has not hindered growth of the church. And in fact, if the primary place of growth of the church is in the global south, and you see the map of where the primary opposition and where the persecution is, don't be surprised that the church is growing. And most of you know the story about the church in China and how it grew and is continuing to grow in the midst of persecution. Persecution does not hinder the growth of the church. So why are we afraid of it? So awareness. I hope it will give us some perspective. Perspective on life. Perspective as individuals, perspective as a church family. One author put it this way. He says, persecution has a way of reorienting our vision. Persecution has a way of reorienting our vision. Our lack of, our, he's talking about North Americans, our lack, uh, lack of experience in this regard may serve to constrict our vision. One Chinese house church leader put it this way, when Chinese believers read the book of Acts, we see in it our own experience. When foreign Christians, that's us, read the book of Acts, they see in it inspiring stories. When Chinese believers read the book of Acts, we see in it our experience. When foreign Christians read the book of Acts, they see it as inspiring stories. I hope it gives us some perspective historically. I hope it gives us some perspective globally. Historically, as we read the New Testament, as you understand what's going on in, in the Bible, uh, the uh, book of the Bible you're studying, historically, hopefully it helps us. Globally, as we watch the news and hear various countries mentioned for different reasons, as you hear about South America and the problems in numerous countries in South America and the economic issues, there's other issues going on as well. So hopefully it helps us to, to have a better awareness. And then corporately and personally, I just hope it helps us sort of understand as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, yeah, the reality, the reality of things in the 21st century. But we do want to take some time for prayer. And you may go in a different direction, and we're just going to have sort of silent, quiet moments of prayer. I'll, I'll introduce a topic, and then uh, we'll, we'll just quietly, I'll leave it for you to pray, uh, to in intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world. Some you know, some of you may be familiar with situations, pray for them. I'm going to do it under five topics. You may want to go a different direction, and that's fine. I'll give us a topic, and then we'll just take 30, 45 seconds or so, and just time for quiet prayer. First one is courage. Pray that God would supply supernatural courage and strength. Words of Joshua came to mind. Be strong and courageous.
Let's pray for our brothers and sisters. The second thing we could pray for this morning for our brothers and sisters in the midst of persecution is, is contentment. That they would find their joy in the Lord above and apart from everything else. Contentment. for them for compassion. One of the key indicators of who is a follower of Jesus is love for our enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. Pray for our brothers and sisters that they would have compassion. for their composure. I don't know how you handle things when they go south, but these brothers and sisters face things going south every day. Pray for their composure. Pray for wisdom in how they respond. Pray for patience to endure. Finally, pray for hope. Pray that our brothers and sisters would know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
the reality of the Lord, saying to our Lord, be seated at my right hand until your enemies have been made your footstool. May they have hope that Jesus is the conqueror, the victor, through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his exaltation and glorification. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Please stand with me as I pray, as the worship team makes their way back to the platform. Remain standing after the prayer is done, but let's pray uh, corporately together for our brothers and sisters around the world. Father, we thank you this morning for the perspective that we can gain, for the awareness that we need regarding our brothers and sisters around the world. Father, I pray, I think of the words of Timothy, of Paul to Timothy, you have not given a spirit of fear but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. Father, I pray that you would take away any spirit of fear. In your spirit, fill them with the spirit of power, and of love, and of self-control. Father, I pray that they would realize that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, not the material things of life, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that your Spirit would bring joy and peace and righteousness in the midst of false accusations, in the midst of blame and shame. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring joy and peace to our brothers and sisters in the midst of these very difficult situations. Father, it's easy, easy, easy to pray that they would have contentment in you. Father, how easy it is, is it for us to pray to have contentment in you and not in things and not in stuff? So Father, I pray that they would just be overflowing with a sense of your spirit welling up within them the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God, and the amazing worth, and the incredible power, and the endless love that we find in our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing.